Harlan, how are we today? Good. Doing good? Everyone say, hey, Nathan. Hey, Nathan. Nathan, roll. New year, new TV. Yeah. Uh, some of you last week came up and asked Dan after the service, you're like, are we just trying to be like one of those cool churches on TV that you guys have that like TV? You're like, no, I, I gave up on being cool in junior high. I knew it was a lost cause. Uh, but this is just in case this preaching thing goes south, I can maybe have a, a, a backup plan as like the new Vanna White or something. Uh, anyway, sorry, just, just trying to make sure we're all awake today. Uh, way to go, way to be here, you hardy Midwesterners. You said, what cold, what ice, I've got four-wheel drive, we're there. We know many of you are watching from, from home. We know there's people who are watching from living rooms and hospital rooms, and uh, we're just thankful to stay connected with you, whether you're staying warm or safe or maybe getting healthy as we, uh, as we jump back into this new series that we uh, started last week. What do we do with our doubts is the question that we've been asking. We said that we all have doubts, whether it's doubts in God or in faith or in the Bible or in parts of the Bible, even pastors have doubts. And so the question is not, what do we do with our doubts? The, the, I'm sorry, the question is not, do we have doubts or, or what do we doubt? The question is, what do we do with our doubts? And that's an important question to ask because churches have, don't have a reputation as being a safe place for, for doubts and doubters. In fact, this was something I learned early on in my life when in my third grade Sunday school classroom, I, my teacher threatened to toss me out of the classroom for asking too many questions about the story of a guy who supposedly lived for three days and nights in the belly of a fish. And when I faced that threat of being tossed from the classroom, um, let's be honest, that's a hard story to believe. There's things about that that raise some big questions. And as, I, and as I faced that threat of being kicked out, what it taught me, what it suggested to me is that maybe... Maybe there's no space in the church for doubts. Maybe there's no space in the church for, for big questions about hard things. Maybe there's no space in the church for me, if that's the case. And maybe you've felt that before with some of the questions that you've wrestled with. Maybe that's been a part of a church that you've been a part of, or maybe a home or a school, is that, is that we can't bring our big doubts to God and to church. And here at Heartland, what we're saying through this series is that we really believe that our doubts matter. We really believe that our doubts are not something to be left at the door, but, or that our doubts are, are, that are something to be afraid of or to feel embarrassed by or even to feel guilty about. We believe our doubts matter. And in fact, we've been given this whole month to be able to have an honest conversation about doubts. And even as part of this series, we're, we're adding a special evening that you may have heard or gotten an email from me about a week from this Wednesday, where we're inviting one of the authors that we have been looking to a lot as we've been planning this series, a pastor and professor from the West Coast by the name of A.J. Swoboda, who wrote a book called After Doubt. He's going to be joining us a week from this Wednesday to spend an hour and a half talking about doubts in greater depth and detail. So I encourage you. This is going to be happening on Zoom, so I encourage you, jump online. You have to register to get that link and be a part of this evening with us. But in his book, After Doubt, Adrian Soboda writes this toward the beginning. He says, this separation of doubt in church has harmed too many. And so imagine coming to learn early on that the church is the safest place to take your doubts. Imagine learning that the church is actually the safest place to take your doubts. That's that's what we're imagining in this series. 
we're imagining that the church, that one another, that the best thing that we can actually do with our doubts is bring them to God and bring them to one another. That's why if you are here on our campus this morning, as you walked in, you actually walked past a very large wall, you'll see it on your way out, that says, bring your doubts. And you'll see some post-it notes and some markers, and this is your opportunity to think about what doubts you may have or what doubts you may have had in any part of your faith and to, to write those on these post-it notes. And it can be anonymous, that's fine, and to, to place it up there. And it's, it's one, just a chance to recognize that we have doubts. But it's, it's, it's also the purpose is to recognize that if we're gonna be a community of people who are journeying in faith after Jesus, we can't do this if we don't make space for our doubts that we need other people to walk with us through our doubts and with our doubts, that we need to be a community actually of doubt companions. And so here's the big idea that, we're, that I hope we're taking away from, uh, from uh, this time today. The big idea is that doubt is not actually a threat to our faith. Doubt is not a threat to faith, but it's an invitation. Everyone say invitation. invitation. It's an invitation to a stronger faith. It's not a threat, it's an, it's an invitation. See, see, doubt is not there to shrink our faith, although it has the potential to do that. If we handle our doubt well, if we give doubt space in our relationship with God, then it can actually strengthen our faith. We have to recognize that, that even before coming to a place of belief and faith in God, that there are mountains of doubt that it seems like you have to cross in order to come to that place. And maybe that's where you find yourself today and we're so glad that you're here. For others of you, maybe you have come to, to believe in God and to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And what we have to recognize is that some of those mountains of doubt don't go away just because you believe in God, even though we sometimes expect them to, even though we sometimes wish that they would. Doubt, I believe, is actually a sacred part of our faith. That doubt, I believe, is actually a, an open door to a deeper faith, to a more meaningful and resilient faith, that if we let it doubt is not a threat to our faith, but it's an invitation to a stronger one. So throughout this series, we're looking at some different passages where Jesus actually uh, encounters doubt. And he welcomes doubt and doubters uh, before him. And last weekend, we looked at, at one. This weekend, we're going to look at another one. And it's recorded by one of Jesus' 12 disciples, a guy by the name of Matthew. And Matthew was an eyewitness to much of Jesus' uh, ministry. And in chapter 14, he records a story where, where Jesus has just done some miracles. And then he sends his disciples, Matthew and the other 11 disciples, he sends them in a boat across a lake uh, while Jesus goes off himself to pray. And when Jesus is done praying, he comes, he comes to the lake's edge and he sees that the, the disciples, the boat has actually been caught in a giant storm. And uh, that's what Matthew, brings us to Matthew 14. And this is, how Jesus, this is how Matthew records the story. He says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water and come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, he walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and starting to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into their boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. 
Now, there's all sorts of ways that doubt plays into this passage. I mean, let's just start with the obvious. Is it even believable that Jesus could walk on water? For the very skeptic, uh, this is a logical thing to be able to question. This is not a natural thing. People, people don't do that. In fact, some people have wondered, and maybe you wonder too, maybe, maybe this whole thing is just kind of some sort of mirage or illusion, or maybe the disciples, because of the storm, their vision was blurred. They didn't quite notice that Jesus was actually standing on the shore. They think he's walking on the water. Uh, some people have speculated, maybe Jesus has, has found a sandbar or a chain of rocks that kind of sit below the surface of the water that he's walking on that makes it look like he's walking on the water, but he's, he's not really. And those are, fair, those are fair questions and objections, and, and they matter. And part of the whole purpose of the Gospels is that we would consider that Jesus did and actually could do the unbelievable. But the part of doubt that I want to focus on is, is a different way that doubt shows up in this story. It's a part of the way that it shows up because, and, and, and actually Peter's part of the story, because this story of Jesus walking on the water shows up in three of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Three of them tell the story of Jesus walking on the water. Matthew's account is the only one that includes this part about, about Peter climbing out of the boat and walking on the water. And if your purpose in writing a gospel is to, is to suggest that Jesus could do the unbelievable, well, then you're going to definitely include this part of Peter walking on the water, which they all do. But, but if you also want to highlight the, the important part of our faith that doubt plays, then you, like Matthew, are going to include this part of Peter. And so Peter, unlike the other disciples, realizes he thinks... That, that this is not a ghost, that this actually is Jesus who is walking across the water. So, so Peter climbs outside of the boat and he walks a few steps on the water and, uh, and, and he, then he begins to sink, is what Matthew tells us. And there's something that's always kind of stood out to me about this, this, the way that Matthew records this part of Jesus sinking. And you notice that as, if you look back at the words, it says that, that as he noticed the wind and the waves, he began to sink, began to sink. Now, that is a little bit strange to me because no one begins to sink. You just sink, right? It's, it's kind of the way Matthew writes it. It's like this slow lowering of, of Peter into the waters, almost like he's falling into quicksand a little bit, like time, time is passing. And no one here has ever started to sink into water. You just sink into the water, whether it's a pool or a lake, a body of deep water, you just, you just sink. And that, that matters, that word matters for one, because every single word that appears in these narratives and these scriptures is a detail that we need to pay attention to. And one of the things, the reasons why I've come to appreciate this word is because I think starting to sink into water versus just sinking into water actually is a pretty good picture of what the experience of doubt feels like. Because... Doubt, you think about it, doubt is actually to become uncertain of things, to begin to question, to begin to, to fall into or sink into, you might say, questioning what you once thought to be true. The doubt is to be between a, a, a couple different options and that there's a, a darkness to doubt, there's a loneliness to doubt, and there's an urgency to doubt. And so I think about as Peter was seeing his feet begin to lower into the water and feel the sturdiness of his footing begin to give way, that as Peter was feeling the water begin to splash up around his face, that the urgency and the loneliness and, and the powerlessness that he was feeling, I think that captures a little bit of what any one of our experiences with doubt, especially doubting big, significant things, I think that captures a little bit of what doubt is like. Have you ever experienced that in your own doubt? 
You know, whether you've, you've doubted God, be it his very existence or his timing or his character, or whether you've doubted prayer, whether the possibility of prayer or if prayer really works, or if you're hearing God the right way in your, in your prayers, or maybe you've chosen a path in your life, maybe even that you thought God was leading you to take, and you begin to doubt whether that really was the right decision to make. We can doubt in all sorts of ways, and when we do, we begin to feel the sturdiness underneath our feet begin to give way, much like Peter walking through the waves of the water. And what I've really, what I've really come to love about this passage is that, is that Jesus lets Peter doubt. And that sounds a little strange, like, like Jesus, why would Jesus let him do that? Jesus, I mean, he, if you are powerful enough, and if you are God, and if you have the ability to walk on the water, certainly you could keep someone else from sinking into it, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus lets Peter slowly start to sink into the water. In fact, Jesus was not afraid of doubt. Jesus was not afraid of letting Peter doubt. In fact, Jesus knew that Peter came from a long line of doubters. That you go back through some of the, the biggest heroes of the faith, all the way back to the beginning pages of Scripture. Moses did incredible things, had incredible faith, also a doubter. Abraham, even before that, was known for his faith, but spent many seasons in doubt as he walked with God. Samson, Elijah, King David, most of the prophets all doubted. John the Baptist doubted. See, Jesus was comfortable with doubt. Jesus wasn't afraid of doubt because Jesus knew that doubt is not a threat to our faith. Doubt is an invitation to a stronger faith. Jesus knew that our faith journey will involve some seasons of walking on water in some seasons of walking through the waves of doubt. And so as we consider Peter's experience of doubt here in Matthew 14, and, and also as I look back on my own life and some of the doubts that I've had in life, there's a few ways that I feel like doubt really does strengthen our faith if we let it. And I just wanna, in our remaining time, walk through a few of these ways that doubt strengthens our faith. And the first, the first way is this, is that doubt strengthens the foundation of our faith. Doubt will strengthen the foundation of our faith. The doubt actually helps us see what faith is and what it is not. When we talk about faith, there's a book of the Bible that was really written in, in the New Testament. It was written for the sole purpose of being able to encourage people in the difficult journey of faith and, and how placing your faith and your hope and your belief upon Jesus was the, was the greatest, most superior thing that you could do. It's a book, uh, it's the book of Hebrews. And in chapter 11, there's a kind of called the faith chapter of the Bible that begins by talking about what, what, what faith is. It says that faith is the assurance, everyone say assurance. assurance. There you go. Of what we hope for and the certainty, you got it, you're with me, uh, of the things not seen. It's the assurance of what we hope for and the certainty of things not seen. Now, there's a distinction here. Notice it says that faith is not based on certainty. Faith is the certainty. Some translations will say that faith is the evidence. Faith is the proof. And as people who live in this part of history, kind of post the enlightenment and post the, 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 the emphasis on scientific discovery, we like answers. We like proof. We like evidence. We like the soundness and the certainty that it gives us. But notice that, that in Hebrews, it says that faith is not based on certainty, but faith itself is the certainty because faith that is based on proof, think about this, isn't really faith at all. And so 
for me, this distinction became really, really important, especially in my teenage years. I grew up, I grew up in a home that talked a, a bit about God, and we found ourselves in church most Sundays. But when I was a, when I was a teenager, I actually began to think, you know what, I, I don't just want to accept all the things that I've been told about God and about the Bible. If this is going to matter and be meaningful, I really want this faith to become my own and consider it and, and come to this place of belief on my own terms. And so for me, it began, a, it, it began a journey of just trying to find all the proof that I could for or against the existence of God, right? And uh, at the time, there was a bunch of books being written to kind of help people in this cause, especially by Christians. There was books that I read and just devoured with titles like Evidence That Demands a Verdict, um, books like Know Why You Believe. A, a, a big one was a book called The Case for Christ. Many of you probably read that book. Um, there was a radio show when I was a teenager that sometimes I would tune into on, anyone remember this it was called The Bible Answer Man? Yes. Okay. What a title for a show, right? Sounds like a superhero or something. I don't know. Um, but the Bible answer man. And the whole basis of this show was, was that there was this guy who could answer any question, that he could counter any objection or argument against God or the Bible. And so I began to kind of rest my faith on the fact that even if I didn't have all the answers, which of course I couldn't, even if I didn't have all the answers, somebody did. And that's what kind of gave me um, some substance or what I thought was some peace to my faith. Now, I'm grateful that there were people and authors and, and pastors and, and individuals out there, ministries, that wanted to help us see that, that faith doesn't have to be completely blind, that there's actually a, a, a great deal of credible evidence for the Bible and for, and for God. That's important, that we don't have to chalk up faith as a total mystery or 100% blind faith. But the downside of it for me in my own story was that I began to support my faith upon the need for proof, which really can only get you so far in the journey of faith. Let's, let me give you a picture of what this is kind of like. Have you, ever, have you ever thought what a marvel a bridge is? You ever thought about that? I'm the son of an engineer, and so I just kind of get geeked out a little bit by some of these things. This is the Mackinac Bridge up, uh, up between the, the upper peninsula of Michigan. It connects lower Michigan with upper Michigan. It's five miles long. It's the fifth largest suspension bridge in the entire world. It took 350 engineers to design this bridge. My family and I, we got to drive over it a, a, a couple years when we were driving up the Midwest. And you, you go about 200 feet in the air. I mean, you feel like you're kind of up in the stratosphere. And you have like Huron on one side, like Michigan on the other side. You can kind of see forever. This is phenomenal. There's 4.8 million rivets, like these big screws, right? 4.8 million rivets holding this bridge together. That's phenomenal. That's, that's incredible. And I bring this up because I think just as a bridge connects two different places, I think faith is kind of like a bridge, that just as a bridge connects one place with another, faith connects us with God, right? It's the kind of thing that, that creates that very belief in that relationship with God. And what we know about bridges is that the strength of a bridge matters. You don't drive across or walk across a bridge if it looks like it can't hold you. In fact, right next to our building right here is Interstate 35, kind of cuts the, the America in half, goes from Texas all the way up to Minnesota. The day that our daughter was born and we were in the hospital, I turned on the news and the headline that day was that earlier in the afternoon that the I-35 bridge in downtown Minneapolis had collapsed. You may remember this just a few years ago. Actually, I guess 14 years ago. Dang. 
but that this collapse and several people tragically lost their lives. And as the city recovered from this, as the inspectors and the reports were done, the, the, un, the, uh, the final diagnosis, kind of verdict of, of why the bridge collapsed was inadequate load capacity. That the bridge had inadequate load capacity. That the bridge could no longer hold the weight that was traveling across it. And so if you're going to drive across a bridge, you want the bridge to be strong enough. And as I thought about my faith, if my faith was a bridge, I wondered if my faith could, could hold up underneath the weight of doubt that I might experience in my life. Think about it like this. If we, if we take this picture, this drawing, if this is a bridge that we travel across, and this bridge is our faith. Our faith is going to encounter different kinds of doubt that places weight on the bridge. I mean, let's talk about just a few of the kinds of weight. Science. That science and scientific discovery for all of us can raise questions, big questions, important questions that might cause us to, to doubt certain things. What do we do with certain scientific discoveries? What do we do when scientists are talking about the age of the earth or evolution or, or other things that they're bringing to the surface? And how do we reconcile that with what, with what we think or have believed to be true? And so, so, so science can create some doubts. And how do we keep our faith strong underneath the weight of that? Not only that, but, but, but big questions about the Bible. I mean, there's things in the Bible that we scratch our heads at. All of us, even, even pastors. You know, there's things, especially in the Old Testament, that I say, God, that, that doesn't seem to jive with what's happening in the New Testament. There's a lot of violence in the Old Testament. God, how, do, how does that fit? And that can kind of begin to raise a question or a doubt or a criticism. Not only questions about the Bible, but just philosophy or even other religions that make kind of different claims about life and about, about eternity or whatever it may be. And I wondered, especially as a teenager, is it only a matter of time until I go to college and I encounter some, some philosophy professor or fellow student who just has the ability to completely dismantle my faith with one argument? And I, and I thought, how am I going to bear the weight of that? Or even this is kind of a newer maybe maybe thing that can create some, some doubt or some weight on the, on the bridge of our faith is social change. What happens when there's movement and things happening in society that are hard to reconcile with faith? What happens when it challenges some of the things that we've believed or been taught? And what do we do with some of those questions that we have that, that's challenging the, the, the relevance of the Bible or the trustworthiness of it? But if there's one thing that I think can, can weigh down on our faith, maybe more than anything else, it's actually this, it's, it's crisis. And especially personal crisis. It's when we go through the loss or we get the diagnosis or our family goes through some sort of season that we didn't expect. And in that moment, when we're experiencing the depths of life at its hardest, that's when we begin to question so many of the core things that we've held onto tightly in our faith. And we wonder, God, is any of that true? Because right now in this moment, it sure doesn't feel like it. And, and that matters because you probably know people, maybe this is part of your story too, where just one of these things, one question in one of these areas has, has broken someone's faith into pieces and left them in a place of, of what do I do with this now? And so for me, I didn't want to be one of those people. I didn't want to be one of those casualties or one of those stories. And so what I reasoned was, well, if this is the bridge of my faith, I want to support it and make it as strong as I possible by finding as many answers as I can to kind of load up my arsenal of proof, you might say, 
that could hold up against any one or more of these things. And what I found as I did that is that this actually leads us to have a very insecure and anxious faith. That these things can be helpful, sure, they can add some rivets into the bridge of our faith. But these things are, are not enough to sustain the weight of doubt and questions and experiences that we will have in our life. That faith that is based on answers can only take us so far. That it makes us actually kind of a fearful faith. And so I was like, wait a second, I don't know if this is strong enough to hold up under all of these things. So then what I began to do was just kind of limit the traffic over the bridge of my faith. And I was like, well, I'm going to kind of keep some things from crossing this or just easily dismiss some of these things or kind of just not have to deal with it just to make sure that my my faith stays intact. And the thing about this, this is not the kind of faith that Jesus had in mind for us. This is an anxious faith. This is the thin shell of faith. And the way that Jesus wants our faith to become strong is not by dismissing or discarding any one of these things. It's by making space to embrace them in our, in our doubts and to wrestle through these things. And instead of supporting the bridge of our faith with the need for answers, we replace it with something far more powerful and important, trust. That, that, uh, that faith is actually the bridge of a relationship. And the way that a relationship, any sort of relationship, grows strong is not by having answers or having proof, but it's by trusting the other part of that relationship, in this case, God, but it can be any sort of relationship, is, is by trusting. And the way that trust is built is not by dismissing doubt, but by making space over time to let doubt strengthen your faith. Here's how one author, pastor in New York, Tim Keller, writes about the importance of doubt. He says, a faith without some doubt is like a human body without any antibodies in it. The people who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but even their friends' and their neighbors' doubts. The doubt actually becomes an antibody in our faith, that it becomes a healthy ingredient or companion to our faith that over time helps strengthen and sturdy our faith, not, not just through finding answers, but even more importantly, by building trust in God as the object of our faith. So doubt strengthens the foundation of our faith, but not only that, doubt also strengthens some other things. Doubt strengthens the honesty and the humility of our faith. It strengthens the honesty and the humility of our faith. Let me talk a little bit about, about each briefly, that, that what doubt has, has done for me is it helped create space in my faith to be able to wrestle and struggle honestly with some of my biggest objections to faith. And see, that's something that doubt lets us do. We can struggle with doubt, but there's a difference between doubt and disbelief. See, see, you don't struggle with disbelief. You just disbelieve. Doubt is something that actually we struggle with. There was a 19th century um, biologist, a scientist by the name of Henry Drummond. He was also a believer in Christ. He was a Christian. He wrote as much about biology as he did about faith. And one of the things he talks about in, in his books is how Jesus was always distinguishing doubt from disbelief. And this is the way that Drummond writes it in his book. He says, doubt is can't believe. Unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honesty, unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light, unbelief is content with darkness. That through doubt, 
God actually invites us into a struggle with him. The doubt isn't meant to have the final say the way that disbelief is. That you can't wrestle with God from a distance, right? You can't wrestle with anything from a distance. Doubt actually pulls us closer into a God to be able to wrestle closely with him. So if you've wrestled with God about anything, you walk out of that with a little bit more intimate knowledge of who God is and and what he's like. This is one of the reasons why I love the Psalms and the prophets in the Old Testament. Because of the way that that they voice some of the doubts and complaints. In fact, fact, there are no doubts or complaints that can show up in our our journals or in our prayers or in our beliefs um, or even some of the smartest atheists of the day. There's no objections that they can voice, that you and I can voice, that haven't already been articulated in certain parts of the Old Testament. This is something that Philip Yancey talks about. He's another great author I encourage you to look up. And this is, he, he says, how incredible is it that not only is God unafraid of our doubts, he even gives us the very words to express them in his word. This is a God who is not afraid to meet us in the midst of our doubts and to let us wrestle with him in the midst of it. God wants our honesty. And that's what doubt helps strengthen in our relationship with him. Not only that, strengthens our, our humility around our faith. Have you ever met any arrogant Christians? No? We don't have, yeah, it's kind of something that I would say Christianity struggles with a little bit. They tend to make the headlines um, or they make life really hard during the week. Uh, I went to seminary um, for, and I don't say that to, to brag um, I, because I don't want anyone to ever think that that's something you have to do in order to be in ministry or to follow Jesus. For me, it was part of this journey of, of wanting to learn more about theology and about God and about the ministry and the mission of the church and of, and of Jesus. And, and you can find a lot of arrogant Christians at seminary. It's kind of like a breeding ground for, for many of them. So my prayer kind of became, um, Lord, don't let me become an arrogant Christian. Don't let me have arrogant faith. And it actually wasn't a hard thing to do because for every one of the hundreds of things that I learned about God and his word, for every one of those things, there was two or three bigger questions that every one of those things raised for me. That I got used and comfortable to the feeling of certain things underneath my feet, kind of starting to be, to be shaken. And, and, and I remember that was kind of a scary thing, but it actually... My encouragement from, from all of this, you know, as I'm leaving seminary with almost with more questions than answers, my encouragement from this was that the people that I most admired in faith, the people who journeyed with Christ the longest, the people who had devoted years of their life to studying and following his word, by the time they got to the end of their faith, these were the people who were more content to live within the core truths of who Jesus is than they were to, to dabble in the peripheral edges of theology, which will be debated until the end of time. And that was something that I was like, God, help me to dwell here and to remain focused here. In fact, there's a theologian by the name of Karl Barth, one of the most prominent hundred years, uh, theologian of the past hundred years. He wrote a 14 volume work called Church Dogmatics. I mean, that sounds like a page turner, doesn't it? You're all putting it on your Amazon wish list right now. Six million words, all about the most crucial things of the Christian faith, dogmatics. That's what dogma is. And when asked uh, to summarize this work, if he could, this is how he responded. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, this was not dismissing the importance of the work that he had done, but he himself knew. He said that when I get to heaven, the angels are going to laugh at what I put together and it's going to be tossed out of a trash can onto the floors of heaven because he was content 
to live in the core truths of who he knew Jesus to be. And so when we really wrestle with doubt, I think it makes our doubt more honest, it makes it more humble, and I think because of that, it makes it more compassionate. And it lets us do what Jude talks about later in the New Testament, the half-brother of Jesus, when writing to other believers, says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have compassion on those who are wrestling through the hard truths of faith and the claims of Jesus. There's one more thing that I think faith helps strengthen in our life, and I think it's actually the most important thing because I think this is, this is where the strengthening of the foundation of our faith and the honesty and the humility of our faith really happens. And, and it's that, that faith strengthens the focus of our faith. I'm sorry, doubt strengthens the focus of our faith. What I mean is that doubt actually, when we doubt, doubt helps us know what to focus on as we go through our doubt. So you think back to Peter's experience of walking on the water. There's this moment where he and Jesus are kind of walking back to the boat and Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, why did you doubt? And I've always kind of read this question as kind of a, a, a rebuke of sorts, like, like silly Peter, you did it again. You know, you weren't cut out for this. You know, what, hey, didn't you just see me do a bunch of miracles? I fed a whole bunch of people, thousands of people with bread and fish that just happened. And, and, and you've seen me do miraculous and powerful things. Why in the world did you doubt? Don't you know who I am? This, this Peter is going to be a doubt-free relationship. Can we get that straight? And I mean, I wonder, can we really blame, G can we really blame Peter for doubting while he's walking on water? I mean, having spent the past five years of my life in Minnesota, I've walked on water. It's frozen when I've done it, but I've done it. And even walking on frozen water, that tests your faith. They do strange things in Minnesota. As you're walking on the water, they even drive on it up there, but as you're walking on the water and it's cracking underneath you, they tell you that's normal. It tests your faith. I can't imagine what in the world it would feel like to walk on liquid water. Jesus, of course he's doubting. And that's one of the reasons why I think this isn't so much of a rebuke from Jesus as it is a, a, an actual honest question that Jesus is tossing his way. Jesus isn't rebuking him. He's asking him to consider, what was it? What was it that happened that caused you to doubt me? See, whenever we doubt, whatever it is, it's all safe. It's all on the table. As long as we answer Jesus' question, why? As long as we start to look for what's, what's behind that. And Matthew actually tells us why Peter doubted. He write, in the writing of the story, he says that Peter doubted when he noticed the wind and the waves. See, he wasn't just aware of the wind and the waves but he started becoming fixated on them. And I think the same thing can kind of happen with doubt is that we think that just because there is doubt that we think, well, now my faith is a complete dead end. Now my faith is completely destroyed because there's these wind and waves of doubt that are, that are happening around me. And the invitation of doubt, if there's one invitation to doubt, I think it's the invitation to focus on Jesus. That in the darkness and the disorientation of doubt, Jesus invites us to focus on him. Even if you don't even believe in him. We're invited to focus on him. Maybe it's even just some part of him, some part of him that you've encountered or you've experienced to be true, maybe more than any other part of, of who he is. Maybe for you, that's his power. For me, I tend to doubt Jesus' power. But the one thing that I have a hard time doubting is his compassion. Because that was really more than proof. That was what really brought me to faith in Jesus, was the more that I learned about and leaned into his compassion. And so when I go through things, whether it's things in, in the experience of life or the experience of faith or, or beliefs or whatever it may be, or when I read his word, I can always go back to fixating on Jesus' compassion. 
And I wonder what it could be for you. You see, for, for the skeptic in here, my hope for you today is that you would start with Jesus. That's why we talk about being a Jesus first church, because Jesus can speak for himself. And that, and that as you bring your doubts to Jesus, no matter how big or how many that they are, that you would know that your doubts matter to Jesus. And that in that you would experience the, that you matter to Jesus and the compassion that he has for you. And for others of us who, who, like Peter, have maybe walked with Jesus for a season or for some seasons, but, but for whatever reason, you're feeling the sturdiness of whatever faith you felt like you had kind of shake underneath your feet and lower into the water. That you would, like, like Peter did, that you would focus on Jesus and cry out to him. See, see Peter, yeah, he, his cry, he cried out to Jesus, Lord, help me, Lord, save me. And it came from a place of doubt when he questioned if everything that he thought was true about Jesus was true but it ultimately was a cry of faith. That it just took one little ounce of faith in the possibility that Jesus actually was who Peter had thought that he was for him to cry out in faith. And that's where Jesus met him. And for those of us who have followed Jesus and experienced doubt, then we feel the wind and waves kind of climb up around us and feel the things underneath our feet start to shake to know and to remember this is how our faith grows. That, that we will spend as much if not more time, I think walking through the waves of doubt and the difficulties of faith as we will actually walking on the surface of the water. And so maybe for you, all you can do today is to reach out your hand toward Jesus's and to focus on him and to cry out, Lord, save me and to see how he meets you in the midst of, of that. So we spent the first couple weeks of this series talking about what doubt is. And how doubt is, is good, it's normal. God can handle our doubt. God is with us in our doubt and God has a purpose for our doubt. The next couple of weeks we're gonna be talking about now what do we actually do with it? How do we handle our doubts well and how do we follow Jesus through our doubts? And so I hope you'll come back in the next couple of weeks as we do that. Um, I hope you also take some time, jump online, pray, or uh, pray, yeah, definitely pray, but jump online and um, register for this event coming up in a couple Wednesday nights with AJ Swoboda. Uh, it's gonna be meaningful and, and rich and worthwhile. I hope you do. But before we go, let me pray for us and for all of you at home. And so God, thank you so much that you make space for doubt. And because you do, Lord, you make space for us. So Lord, I pray for every single person who is listening to this message, um, whether they're here or online or later in this week, God, I believe that you have a purpose for them and you have a purpose for their doubts. Lord, I believe that more than overcoming or conquering our doubts, Lord, what you want us to do is to be comfortable with them because of what doubt can do in our faith and in our life. Lord, help us to be a community and a place that anticipates that, that makes room for that and celebrates that, God. And as we go into the realities of life, Lord, as our faith, you know, bears the weight of whatever doubts and weight comes our way, would you help us to trust in you? And Jesus, it's in your mighty and your powerful, your beautiful name that we pray. And everyone who agrees with this, would you say out loud, amen? Amen. amen. Hey.